It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked on Vikings. I am your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at LukeBraunNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Himalaya, whatever you like. Or you can just ask your smart device like Siri, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, whatever you like. Play podcast Locked on Vikings, and it'll take you right to the most recent episode. Today we have day four of the Ultimate Division crossover. We're talking about the Green Bay Packers today, uh, and I get to get in a couple of pot shots at Peter Bukowski of Locked On Packers, uh, and of course the other Locked On Division hosts are all there. We're talking Packers this time. We're also going to do a little bit more salary cap talk. I have the top 15 possible cap casualties on the Vikings, the, the 15 players that you know you stand to gain the most cap space by cutting them, and I'm going to rank them in order of how cuttable they are, how good of an idea that is. But first, it's time for the Viking of the Day. And the Viking of the Day today is Warren Moon. It's still Black History Month, and I feel like that is appropriate. There wasn't really a time in Warren Moon's career where he wasn't one of the best in his world at what he was doing, and the barriers he faced had very little to do with how good he was at playing quarterback, very famously so. Throughout his childhood and and high school, Warren Moon was one of the best quarterbacks in his city, one of the best quarterbacks that any college could have access to. But back in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a stereotype about black athletes and how they couldn't produce at the thinking positions, as Warren Moon puts it. Quarterback and linebacker, they could run, they could jump, they could block, but if you needed them to read a defense or break things down on the fly, people didn't really believe that they were capable of doing that, even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And Warren Moon's story is one that should be appreciated not only for the things that he accomplished on the field and just creating a Hall of Fame career, but the circumstances that he faced at every turn and the obstacles he had to overcome to do so. For example, because schools aren't quite as good in the neighborhoods that are predominantly black, especially in urban areas, Warren Moon actually used his mom's friend's address to get into Alexander Hamilton High School. And this is going to set the tone for the rest of his career. In a world where accepting the status quo probably means Warren Moon doesn't play football, Warren Moon always bucked the trend, and he refused to go along with what the system said he should be. So he ends up at West Los Angeles College, and he plays so well there that he finally ends up getting a scholarship at one of the bigger schools of the time, which is the University of Washington. And over his time there, he amasses more accolades. He's the Pac-8 Player of the Year one year, he's the Rose Bowl MVP the next, and he ultimately is just a dominant quarterback in college. But just like his transition from high school to college, his transition from college to the NFL comes with the obstacle of being a black quarterback. And, I mean, this isn't gone by any stretch of the imagination. Just look at the discourse surrounding somebody like Lamar Jackson. There are still people who are holding on to the idea that he should have moved to wide receiver, right? And on the flip side, you have someone like Taysom Hill, who very clearly does not have the chops to play NFL quarterback and should be a gadget player, and the Saints used him very well and got lots of very good results out of him. And there's all sorts of discourse all over the community talking about whether or not Taysom Hill should be the franchise quarterback for the Saints. It is a a pattern that you can see time and time again 
all over. And it was something that was way more severe than we could ever imagine back in the 70s and 80s. And so in the 12 rounds of the NFL draft, nobody selects Warren Moon. A couple of teams approach him and say, hey, if you switch positions, we'll give you a shot. But he knew he wasn't the best athlete. He just was a black athlete. And so everybody thought he was a better athlete than he was. And he said, nope, I will play quarterback in Siberia if I have to. I'm playing quarterback. So he goes to the Canadian Football League and he plays with uh, the Edmonton Eskimos for the most part for six years. And he wins some great cups. He wins a bunch of MVPs there. He very clearly does not belong in the Canadian Football League because he is just better than everyone around him all the time. And he ends up being a Hall of Fame quarterback. So you can definitely imagine. I mean, put Drew Brees in the CFL and see what happens. Eventually, he gets a little bit of a bidding war after six years. He decides to come back to the NFL and the Houston Oilers and the Seattle Seahawks get in a bidding war over him. The Houston Oilers get him, and that's where he plays most of his time in the NFL. And he ends up gracing the Vikings for a little bit. And I think Warren Moon kind of occupies a very important place in the Vikings' reputation as as a team that always takes the retreads from everybody else. That was Warren Moon, just one of many of among the, you know, the Jim McMahons and the Brett Favres and the Donovan McNabs, you know, Moon worked out probably better than most of those. But after refusing to take a pay cut to be the backup to Brad Johnson, he ended up moving on and becomes a Seattle Seahawk at long last and continues to play at a high level. And I think it's safe to say the Vikings kind of bungled that one. But this isn't really about that, right? Warren Moon's story isn't about how the Vikings didn't quite get the most out of him. This is about how Warren Moon broke down barriers throughout the entirety of his career, ended up in the Hall of Fame, and is still a mentor and an example to black athletes, especially black quarterbacks and people who, you know, want to play more cerebral positions where there's still a stereotype and a a stream that they have to swim up to get to the point where they are respected at that position. His impact changed the NFL and the way that it interacts with racial stereotypes and race in general forever, and I don't think you can overstate how important that is. Moving on to a more uh, fun, perhaps, topic, a little bit less history, a little bit more back-of-the-envelope calculation, let's talk a little bit about some of these cap casualties. We've done a lot of kind of preliminary salary cap work where we talk about like how the salary cap works and you know how the Vikings can, in the abstract, restructure contracts and stuff. But let's talk about some names and let's talk about these guys and their contracts. I have in front of me a list of the top 15 possible cap-saving cuts that the Vikings could make. Everybody from uh, you know Dalvin Cook, everybody who could save over a million dollars. That's Dalvin Cook, who could save a million and change, all the way up to Everson Griffin, who could save $13 million against the cap if he is cut. And so I just want to rank them on how good of an idea I think it is. And we'll go from bottom to, to top, worst idea to best idea. But before we get into all that, I just want to remind you all that the ad space on this podcast is for sale. If you have a small business, a local business, and you want to reach out to the kind of fans that this podcast tends to appeal to... Make sure you let us know, and we will make sure that you are set up for Locked On Advertising Success. All you have to do is text ADVERTISING to 33777, or go to LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising and let us know who you are and what your deal is. You've heard me do ad reads on this podcast. You know that we will take care of you and your brand and make sure that your message gets out to the people who want to hear it. So text ADVERTISING to 33777, or go to LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising. Tell us a little bit about who you are, and we will make sure that you get set up. We hope to hear from you soon. Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Locked On Podcast Network. In this crazy, unprecedented, and unnerving time, I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors 
over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down? The Calm app is available for you. 40% off to our listeners at calm.com slash locked on NBA. Stuck at home, want fitness? Echelon Fit has been a sponsor of ours. And you can go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. And if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time, Masterclass, or at least your time at home, masterclass.com slash P-E-R is offering 15% off. If you missed any of those, go to lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. That's lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. Thank you very much for tuning in to Lockdown Podcast Network. We hope to be here for you to give you a relief and uh, respite from all the other news. And thanks very much. Be safe and practice your social distancing. All right, let's actually talk about these guys, shall we? So, like I said, this is the top 15 possible cap savings players on the roster, or another way to put it is these are the players that if you cut them are the ones that can save you real money, over a million dollars at least, uh, and it goes all the way up to the $13 million that you can save by cutting Everson Griffin. So we're talking here not only about the amount of money you can save, but in what you're actually losing, right? You can save quite a bit of money by cutting Harrison Smith, but I think he's still a quality safety. You don't save a ton of money by cutting Pat Elfline, but you might want to do that anyways. You're definitely replacing him as the starting left guard, so you might as well cut him and get a little bit cheaper at the backup position anyways. And so at the very bottom of this list, the one person who you could save money by cutting, but the very, very last person that I would do it for is Daniil Hunter. And I don't think that should come as too much of a surprise. You know I'm a huge Daniil Hunter fan. You know I think he's one of the top 10 edge rushers in the league, and I think he will be for like five or six years to come. And no matter what happens with the Vikings, right, whether it's coaching changes, GM changes, regime changes, scheme changes, Daniil Hunter will have a place somewhere on that defense because he's very, very, very good at football. And saving five and a half million would do, I mean, obviously, it would go not even a fraction of the distance you would need to go to replace somebody like Daniil Hunter. Hunter actually has a cap hit of like $14.5 million, uh, but because of similar stuff to what we talked about yesterday with Stefan Diggs and signing bonuses, cutting him only actually saves you $5.5 million. You'd incur another $9 million dead money cap hit. Pretty much the exact same logic applies to Stefan Diggs, who's the next player on this list. I defended the heck out of him on yesterday's episode, so go listen to that. But in short, his emotional leadership is valuable. He's very good at a valuable position. His contract does not exactly uh, scream major cap savings. You could only save, again, $5.5 million from uh, cutting or trading him. And ultimately, the savings that you would get by cutting him, you'd never be able to replace that value. It would almost certainly be a net negative move. Terrible idea. Don't do it. Next on the list is Adam Thielen, who you actually stand to gain uh, even less. So I, I, it's weird that he's above Diggs on this list. Uh, but I am basically making that point based on age. Uh, I mean, Thielen did just go over a hamstring injury. And by the way, Thielen, I believe, has now missed more games in his career than Stefan Diggs. For those of you who are concerned with Stefan Diggs' injury history, one seven-game hamstring 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 injury means that uh, he's now like missed more time than Diggs, I think, or at least it's close. But the same thing applies. He's a very valuable player. He's probably going to be good for a while. He doesn't have a lot of tread on his tires for his age because of the way his career kind of manifested itself. And he's also been somebody that can win. I, I think he wins in a way that when, you know, age starts to grip him and start 
starts to, you know, slow him down and slow down his, his athleticism and explosiveness, he's still a refined enough route runner where he can still have a place on this team for a, quite a while after that day comes. And that day has not come yet, and I don't think it's close. Next on the list is Anthony Barr. I think he's the next most important player on uh, on the defense that you can't really save much money by cutting. Uh, you only save $2.3 million by cutting his contract. Obviously, it's a pretty freshly signed contract and cutting him for cap space after signing him to that big deal would be pretty bad management. And replacing somebody like Anthony Barr is impossible even without uh, taking, you know, a, like an $11 million uh, dead money hit or whatever it would be. But with only $2 million to work with uh, and no other compensation, I mean, if you traded him, maybe you get some draft picks, but even with that, replacing Anthony Barr is a tall, tall order. He just performs too many important functions for the defense. I've talked a lot about on the show, so you've probably heard it, uh, but, you know, he, he generates a lot of pressure that he doesn't necessarily get credited for because of simulated pressures and things that he's really good at with his range, and you just don't find players like him every day. He's just a, a unique kind of player that Mike Zimmer's really, really good at using, and I just don't want to lose that value. Uh, next on the list is Eric Kendricks, who is similarly just somebody you can't replace for the $2 million in change that you would save by cutting him. Obviously, I mean, these are all really obvious ideas. Don't cut any of these guys. Even if you could find somebody like Alexander Johnson from the Broncos, who is of, of similar quality, you're never going to get as good of a linebacker contract. I mean, Eric Kendricks' contract is incredible, even though it's already been restructured once. He's just a good deal, and don't disrupt a good deal. Next on the list is Kyle Rudolph. I definitely wouldn't cut him right now because he only saved $3 million against the salary cap. Uh, you incur a huge dead money hit. He is an older player and somebody who you might even be able to replace if you get a tight end in the draft. And if Irv Smith, you know, takes another step, you might be able to replace him. I don't think this is the year to do it. I'm putting him above all those other, like, absolutely no-brainer type guys, but I definitely still wouldn't endorse uh, cutting Kyle Rudolph just for cap space. Uh, next on the list is Harrison Smith, and he is higher on this or on this list than I really thought I would put Harrison Smith, considering how good he is. So this isn't a take about how good Harrison Smith is. I do think he had a bit of a down year in 2019, but nothing particularly alarming. It's mostly that you can save eight uh, and three quarter million dollars by cutting his contract. And if you wanted to say, hang on to Anthony Harris and you needed to cut Harrison Smith's contract to do it, that's something you may consider. Anthony Harris will probably be more expensive just because he's signing his contract in a much more expensive market with a bigger salary cap. And so I do think Harrison Smith is on a pretty good deal right now. He's a good restructure candidate though, just because of all that unguaranteed cash on his contract that tends to make players a little nervous and you might be able to get a little bit of a restructure going just to get some more guaranteed cash for them. That that does tend to be something that they're willing to hear. Next on the list are uh, the other two players I really wouldn't cut, mostly, mostly because, I mean, these guys are both good enough at their jobs, they're decent deals, and you just can't save a lot with them. Josh Klein and Dalvin Cook, both of them save less than $2 million. Uh, they're technically on this list, but they barely make the cut. They save $1.6 and $1.3 million, respectively, by cutting them. And of course, that's a dump. You're never going to cut Dalvin Cook, right? The Vikings love him way too much. He's a huge part of the offense. Uh, it, we could go into the discussion about whether or not running backs matter, and that's why he's higher on the list than somebody like Diggs or Thielen, who uh, I, I think is just as important a skill player. But of course, you know, the running back is going to matter a little bit less just by the nature of that. But I don't think that you can replace what Dalvin Cook does as easily as you can replace what somebody like Ezekiel Elliott does or what somebody like Leonard Fournette does. I, I think that Dalvin Cook's elusiveness and his effectiveness in the pass game and the fact that targets to him were genuinely efficient plays, which is not true for every team, even teams with like Alvin Kamara on them. Targets to Alvin Kamara were not efficient. They actually averaged negative EPA and Dalvin Cook's 
EPA when targeted was very, very high. So I think that it would be insane to cut him. And the only reason he's higher on this list than everybody else is just by nature of the position that he plays. But I definitely wouldn't do it. And for Josh Klein, I don't think that you can replace Josh Klein for cheaper than what you have right now. Same logic as, you know, Eric Hendricks and and Diggs and all those guys. You only save 1.6 million, and that's really not going to get you any better of a guard. There's better ways to generate cap space. So now we've kind of hit a tipping point here because everybody else on this list are people that I would at least entertain the notion of cutting for cap space. Everybody I've said so far, there's absolutely no reason to do it, and ranking them above and below each other is mostly an arbitrary exercise because there's just no way you're ever going to do it. Of the people that I would consider that I would like to cut for cap space the least... Riley Reef is the next on the list. I, I don't love the idea of cutting him. You only save $8.8 million and you're left without a left tackle. Sure, maybe there's something you could do with, like, you could limp through with Rashad Hill. I hate that idea. He's not a starting quality player. You could hope Oli Udo develops more. I like his futures, but I don't like him that much. I'm not that certain about him. I think there's a chance, but it would be really, really risky to do that. And you could also have the option of restructuring him and moving him to guard. There's a lot more options to get money off of his contract and to make your contract situation better than cutting him for cap space. There's just too many better options out there. And the same thing applies to the next guy on the list, which is Everson Griffin. Everson Griffin, you could cut $13 million in cap space uh, by getting rid of him, but you could restructure him, right? You could uh, add guarantees and lower his cap number. You could uh, you could convert some into signing bonus, which would keep him happy and keep him around. There's also a chance that Everson Griffin voids this contract himself, though the way he's talked uh, publicly doesn't sound like he's interested in doing that, but the option is absolutely there for him, and he could void it himself. So action on Everson Griffin isn't my favorite idea, but it's something that I would at least entertain, just by nature of the huge number you could, I mean, a $13 million cap hit saved, that's massive. That's most of Anthony Harris. That's a huge free agent. That could be the best interior lineman of all time could cost less than that. You could really solve a problem with that $13 million, and that's the only reason he's even above that tipping point line for me. I think he still has a year or two left in him, uh, but... I think it's Eric Eager who says all the time, you'd kind of rather be early than late to that kind of thing. I'd rather see him go play well for somebody else one more year and then have them have to deal with the age decline than to deal with it yourself and pay a lot to do so. But either way, I still think he has enough time before that age decline hits where he's probably going to be worth some level of contract. And like Riley Reef, there's a lot of options to make that a more reasonable number. Last four guys on the list are guys that I actually do advocate cutting. And the first one is Pat Elfline, because you're going to replace him anyways. You only save $2.1 million by saving him. It's not a huge number. It'll help. It's part of an equation. But I think because you are... Uh, getting rid of him anyways. I mean, you could cut him, spend that $2 million on a, 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 you know, tier three guard, a day three of free agency guard, and then go draft a guard, and you'd have a reasonable competition, and you're going to draft a guard anyways, and I think that that just kind of makes sense to g- give him a fresh start, and the way that he played in the NFL was more of XFL style play, honestly, or XFL caliber, that is. If he were a rookie this year and he were part of that rookie class, he would be the 10th rookie guard in the 2019 season, and he probably would have ranked 8th in terms of actual play. He just was inexcusably bad, and it's just kind of time to move on, and he can save a buck while doing so. 
I think the Vikings are in a pretty bad situation with the next guy, and that's Shamar Stefan. They actually have to take, uh, he has a $5 million cap hit right now, and you can cut him, and you can save half of that, but he takes a big dead money hit because he gave him a signing bonus. The Vikings signed him to be a starting quality defensive tackle, and so I am kind of concerned that they aren't going to cut him, but I, I don't think that he's good enough. I mean, he's a, an okay nose tackle. He didn't get draw as many double teams as like anybody else's defensive tackle. He didn't draw double teams off of Linval Joseph. He didn't draw double teams off of the edge rushers because he couldn't penetrate. He got washed out by everyone's sixth round guard. The Vikings need to improve on him, and he's way too expensive to be a backup, so get rid of him. The next two guys are two way more popular cut options. Uh, The first one is Xavier Rhodes. Uh, You save, of course, $8 million by getting rid of him, and I think he's another one where it's just like time for a, a fresh start. He... It might turn around. I actually like his chances to turn it around because I do think that his problems were in his head. And if you can get rid of that, you know, get rid of that. And that's a good thing. But A, that's not a guarantee. And I would rather somebody else be involved in that uh, risk matrix. And B, even if he does pull it together, how many years of quality corner play does this guy have left in him? Again, you'd rather be early than late to these kinds of things. If somebody else wants to take him, mold him, and get a year or two more of good play than good on them, but I don't want to pay out the nose for not even being certain that that's going to happen. And the guy at the top of my list, it it hurts me to do. I hate doing this to Linval Joseph, but it's Linval Joseph. I, I, I love the guy, and I do think that he has maybe one more year of quality nose tackle play. But I'm concerned that the slight drop-off we saw in 2019, it wasn't dramatic. It was maybe as big as Harrison Smith's drop-off. He didn't do great down the stretch. It, it got worse as the season went on, which is a concerning symptom of it. And you can save $10 million, uh, $10.5 million by cutting him. And again, If he goes and has one more good year somewhere else and you missed out on one good year for $10 million, I'm kind of okay with that. I would rather not have a hugely expensive guy that's falling off of an age cliff, and I'm okay with preempting that. So there you have it. Those are my fifteen top 15 salary cap casualties in order of how good of an idea I think it is. I'm probably way past the time that I actually have for this podcast because we still have to do the Ultimate Division crossover. We are talking Packers, so coming up in just a second, all four of us Locked On hosts are going to get together and, uh, you know, rail on the Packers like our God-given right is to do. All right, let's finish up the Ultimate Division crossover, at least our look at the teams in the NFC North Division with the NFC North division champion, the Green Bay Packers, the worst 13-3 and team in history, guys. That's what I was told all year. <laughs> so let's. I, I actually want to start with that because I, I think this is fascinating. There, There is absolutely a case for the Packers regressing in 2020. I do not think they will win 13 games. They will not be as healthy. They will not be as good in close games. But I want to start with Luke because at the end of the year, I heard this a lot, and I'm not sure it's necessarily even wrong that the Vikings, whose advanced numbers and a lot of statistics back this up, that they were just a better team despite the fact that they lost to Green Bay twice. From a talent standpoint, it's hard to argue that Minnesota is more talented. Did you feel like at the end of the year, you know, despite how both seasons ended, that the Vikings were really the better team? I think a way to put this is um, like that take, and I, I saw that take around too, and it is difficult to like reconcile that with the fact that the Vikings put out their two worst offensive performances by a pretty large margin yeah. against the Packers, and then there was the one Bears game. Uh, but I, I think if you say put the Vikings and Packers against you know the same neutral situation that 
on average, the Vikings would do better. You know, if they both played mm-hmm. it like the Lions in Detroit, on average, the Vikings would do better. But it's also difficult to reconcile that because both of our seasons ended with exactly the same 17 point <laughs> loss to San Francisco. We're two teams in kind of the same position. So I, I wouldn't say that that take is like crazy ridiculous, uh, but I definitely see the arguments against it. And I would probably call it a lot more even than that. Yeah, it, it does seem like that they were they were pretty even. Matchups matter too, right? I mean, this is this is a matchup league. You can you can be the better team. There are people that thought Seattle was better than Green Bay, and yet the Packers were up three touchdowns in that game uh, for for a lot of it. So the the matchup part is interesting, and and that's why the the Packers and the Bears part, where with with a healthy Aaron Rodgers, the last two years the Packers have played the Bears extremely tough. Even in a down year last year, the Packers went. Uh, and got a win against the Bears in the Bears' best season in a while. Lauren, from your standpoint, with with the Bears and their talent, do you do you feel like the matchup is is good for you guys because of what the defense is able to do? Because the defense has played well against this Packers offense really for years. Well, it it seems like it, especially with the Packers, it always comes back to what the Bears can do offensively, and that yeah. has been very little for the last. Maybe my entire lifetime, but at least the, at least the last <laughs> few years. And it's, I mean, it's a sore spot for Chicago Bears fans. It feels like it's, it, even though the the rivalry, I think, in wins and losses hasn't been as one sided in in the recent years. It still it still feels like every time the Bears play the Packers, it's can the Bears keep up with Green Bay? Can the Bears score on this Packers defense? And can Mitchell Trubisky or whoever's going to be under center be able to work against Mike Pettin? And and I think Pettin's done a good job of really getting in Mitchell Trubisky's head to the point where he's mm-hmm. in ghosts the way Sam Darnold admitted to on the sidelines of his Monday night football game where he was mic'd up. I think a lot of that was happening to Mitchell Trubisky. And I think as long as it's the Patton versus Trubisky matchup, I, I don't like the Bears chances of being able to put points on this Packers defense, especially with just the way all of the Packers free agent signings and, and additions this last offseason really seem to pan out. At least the big important ones, including the former Bear Adrian Amos, who I think the Bears fans are starting to look back just a little bit with like, well, it would maybe maybe it would be nice to have him right now rather than having to either pay haha Clinton Dix more money and have a, a a poor matchup with with Eddie Jackson or try and find some other replacement to just be the new Adrian Amos. It it all kind of worked out in in all the right ways for the Packers last season. None of those Bears fans are in my mentions for the record. Um, it it is interesting too because that you you mentioned this matchup with Mike Patton. It is always been and and has been at, at the very least in a pronounced way the last two years Mike Pettin's uh, ideology that he is going to dare you to run the ball he's going to play small and dare you to run the ball and and someone like Kyle Shanahan is is like bet let's go and Matt Nagy does not want to run the ball so it feels like that part of the matchup for the Packers there is this alignment of, well, the Bears want to throw it 50 times, even if they have Mitch Trubisky, which I don't, I don't know if that's the worst idea, just from a, a purely philosophical standpoint. But the Packers have this really good matchup with Mike Patton and uh, Matt Nagy. And, and that is uh, just an interesting thing to, to keep an eye on moving forward. It, it could ultimately be Matt Nagy's downfall in Chicago. And I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. But if they can't if they can't do anything this year, I don't know, it it is striking to me that he's been unable to solve the Mike Patton riddle when it when it doesn't seem that hard for some other teams frankly um from from the Lions standpoint Matt um I mentioned earlier in the week that that the Lions played the Packers the toughest they came out in that first matchup 
at, at in Green Bay and and jumped on the Packers, and they did the same thing in Detroit. Is is it seems like to me anyway, and and you you can correct me if I'm wrong that this idea that the Lions are sort of the little brother. The Packers owned them for years that once the, the Lions a few years ago got those wins that win in Lambeau to get the monkey off their back. I mean, it had been 20 plus years since they'd won in Lambeau that it seems like now Packers fans at least view the Lions a little bit more on an even plane. I don't I don't know what the perspective is from the other side. I'll, I'll say this, Pete, about, about Detroit's perspective. Ownership kept Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn around. And I think they looked at those two Packer games and said, we are closer than our fans think we are. Mm -hmm. And some of the experts think we are because we went into Lambeau, got robbed and jobbed by the officials on the Trey Flowers calls, should have won that game. And then week 17 playing for nothing, nothing. And playing with scrubs and fourth stringers and, and, and guys off the street, you know, they took a double digit lead over a green Bay team playing for, for playoff seating. So the Lions ownership uses those Packer games as this measuring stick. So, yeah, so the last couple of years, the Lions have played the Packers really well, but unfortunately those games haven't had that much meaning for Detroit, <laughs> which is which is too bad. The game at Green Bay this year, you're right, though. That was early in the year. Stafford was rolling, and the Lions looked like they were turning the corner, and then, you know, the, the rug got, got pulled out from underneath them. Some of it was officiating. Some of it was their own doing and getting too conservative defensively, and and Rodgers brought him back. I, I'm with you, Pete. I know we'll talk about it tomorrow. I, I do see a regression with the Packers. Um, you know, while the games are entertaining, your Twitter war with TJ Lang is entertaining. Uh, I, <laughs> I view Green Bay and Detroit as playing probably two close games again this year too. I think the Lions will be better. Yeah. And I'm with the thing about the Packers that, that impresses me is the, those Smith brothers. And I know they're not related, but those two guys are are just exactly what Detroit doesn't have. It's kind of ironic. You look at, at Chicago and the pass rush there. We talked about Daniil Hunter in Minnesota. Then you got the Smiths in Green Bay. Man, it would be nice this year if, if in Detroit we talked about Trey Flowers and Deshaun Hand the same way as we talk about those guys, uh, uh, Preston and Zadarius in Green Bay, because those guys changed a lot, in my opinion, on, on how the Packers played this year. And let me let me ask you about that, because um, the Lions have some decisions to make along the defensive front in free agency. And one name that has come up among Packer fans on their uh, desirable list is a Sean Robinson. Is he someone that is is part of the long term future in Detroit? Are they going to are they going to give him the bag to stay? I, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. Bob Quinn usually lets free agents that were not his draftees walk away. Uh, there's hardly any Martin Mayhew guys left. Maybe Stafford, Sam Martin, actually Martin Mayhew. Uh, Millen was a Stafford guy, but um, uh, Stafford, Don Muehlbach, and um, Sam Martin, really, and they might let their punter walk, too. So, Ashawn Robinson's interesting. The, the, when Snacks Harrison first got there two years ago, Ashawn flourished. Last year, you barely knew Ashawn was on the field. Mm-hmm. He needs to change the scenery, in my opinion. But, if the Lions let him walk, they're very shorthanded at D-line, and interior D-line with, with injuries. Snacks may retire. Yeah. Um, Daniels, I think, is, is going to, if he comes back, it's going to be on much less money than he made last year. So I, I don't know. I think I'm 50 50 on Ashawn coming back. Uh, but if Green Bay likes him and, and, and offers him more money, I think he'll be gone. Well, you mentioned the, the flourishing next to, to Snacks Harrison, who was 
at that time, closer to his physical prime, you put him next to Kenny Clark and and have Zadarius or Preston Smith on the other side of him. Now all of a sudden teams have to single block him. That it's a, certainly a situation where I think he would be in a much better position to succeed. The, your your point about the two close Lions games, we talked about the regression with the Packers. If there is a, a reason to believe that that they could regress, it is that they won two close games against the Lions. They won. A, a single score game against the Vikings and one against the Bears or two against the Bears, including one that that needed a last second interception in the end zone and uh, a non flip in the second Packers Bears game at the end of that. Um, you know, if you lose two of those games, all of a sudden you're looking at an 11 and five team versus a 13 and three team. So just the fact that this this division is so close, is so competitive is reason enough to think the Green Bay Packers could regress in 2020. We're going to be back tomorrow to take a holistic view of the NFC North, go around and and make some predictions, look into our crystal balls and see what we can see about what could be the most competitive division in the league next year. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Locked on Vikings. Sorry, this one went a little bit long. Uh, the, the Packers thing went a little long and I went long talking about the salary cap cuts and Warren Moon and stuff. Hope you guys don't mind. So uh, good news. I will actually see you guys tomorrow because we all did a wrap up podcast of uh, all of the like general NFC North thoughts between the four of us NFC North hosts. So do stick around and tune in for that tomorrow. I will see you tomorrow for a bonus Friday podcast, something I don't usually do, but it's a, a treat on me. Uh, happy, I don't know, Valentine's Day, I guess. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. Show's on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, or you can ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. We'll see y'all tomorrow, and as always, Skull. Hey, sports fans. My name's Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked on Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked on NBA Network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer, to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune into Locked On Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.